Hello and welcome. It's another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Book of the Year. Books of the Year? No. Books of the Year. Book that's, of the Year. That's not we just book got of one the... book. <laughs> just the one podcast one for the book. entire that, year. That's that's the only thing. Yeah. Um, you can get in touch with us. Uh, thank you for the uh, emails and for the tweets and people who just call in at reception and then uh, leave yes. messages. Cross the road and talk to us, yes. June Richards emailed us at booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Hi, lads. All right, lads. Uh, I have just listened to questions, questions eight on your wonderful podcast. Oh yes. Uh, this is uh, Kermit and Mayer's take. This is, but this is the other, this of is course, the, the film uh, podcast portfolio of podcasts that yes. you're involved in. Yes, that, that's true. Anyway, I really like one of the questions, which went something like this: If you could have a sequel to a film or TV series, which one would it be? I don't know if Simon remembers his answer, but I had a huge grin on my husband's face when he said Master and Commander. Which is because often if they're very successful films, they're all already yeah. Yeah, sequels. But for various reasons, there was not a sequel to that. We travel, says June, around a lot in our motorhome. And one summer holiday ran out of DVDs to watch. We watched Master and Commander eight nights running. Eight and, nights and, running? And Ian, my <laughs> husband, still laughs at the lesser, lesser of two weevils joke. <laughs> See the movie for details. In fact, just like Far and Away... He can recite huge chunks of the film. And so it led me to wonder, if you could have a sequel to a book, which one would it be? My sequel wish will never happen, as I would spend a lot more time with the March ladies from Little Women. What would your sequels be, um, Simon and Matt? I, that, I'd forgotten about the lesser of two weevils. It's very good. Uh, joke. It's like a ship's biscuit joke. There wouldn't be much point in making a weevils joke. No, I no. don't think uh, anymore. Um, do you want to? Well, I suppose right. Because I'm, I'm going to cheat. So oh, on. are you? Yeah. Oh, right. You're going to choose Master and Commander. Brilliant. No, no. <laughs> right. No. What are you gonna well, choose? I so it's difficult, isn't it? Because books that you want to revisit are going to be ones that you really enjoyed, and normally with a book you've really enjoyed, everything's been tied up at the end. But um, I remember reading. Um, so Stephen King gets so many mentions on this podcast, but anyway, I'm going to bring him up again. Is uh, in his um, short stories, uh, Four Seasons, which uh, obviously uh, includes um, the Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, and I'd always hankered after finding out what happens to those the the, the two main characters. Uh, when they wash up on that, or they end up on that uh, shore in Mexico, uh, and he's working on his boat, and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to read that book about what happens to those two characters afterwards. What about you? What, what's going to be your cheat? My cheat uh, is I would like a sequel to Knife Edge. Oh um, yes, which is oh my goodness. Well, look, the the reason I say that is because uh, so I wrote that a few years yes, ago, and yes. I'm and I'm writing and I'm trying to write something now, yes, which is sort of a sequel. Uh huh. And but if if it would if it would be possible for someone else to just say oh I've already got it right. I've done I've done it here it is all right so that person turns up at your house and says there it goes yes well done. I don't want any money for it I don't want any rights you can just have it for yourself anyway yes we've got an, another email from Emma Shaw. yes Emma Emma Kreitch, uh, or Emma in Kreitch, rather uh, says a few months ago on a rainy dull weekend my boyfriend and I had a godfather marathon we watched all three films back to back over the whole day and night and it prompted me to go and read the original novel by Mario Puzo uh, which I really really enjoyed wow. it made me wonder how often this occurred as people almost always say you should read the book before 
watching the film. But in the case of The Godfather, I'm not sure it mattered. I'd be keen to know you and your listeners' uh, thoughts on this. And if anyone else has watched an adaptation of a novel, then read it and enjoyed it just as much. Is there anything for you? The only one that sprung to mind was The Princess Bride, yeah, the movie, yeah. and The Princess Bride, the book by William Goldman. And I hadn't... Uh, in fact, I didn't when I saw the when I saw the movie, I didn't even know it was a book. Um, but I but I enjoyed the book many, many years later. So I would. But The Princess Pride is one of my favorite films. And if you haven't seen it, it's sort of you're sort of wrong. And it's like a gap in your life. And you definitely it hasn't aged. Well, I have to say there are some scenes in it. You go, mm. Mm, maybe we should uh, do that one again. Mm. Um but yes, so William Goldman's The Princess Bride is what I would. So there is a there was a, um, a Matt Damon movie um, also had Jason Isaacs in it um, uh, a few years ago called Green Zone, which uh, is based on the book Imperial Life in the Emerald City uh, inside Baghdad's Green, Green Zone, which is a superb book. So I saw the movie first. And I enjoyed the movie. I didn't think it was a world beater, but I thought it was, it was a pretty good that's movie. It's a Paul Greengrass film. Correct. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, I found out it was based on this book, so I decided to read the book. The book is amazing. I mean, it's a non-fiction book about the, the green zone inside Baghdad uh, during the uh, Iraq war, but it is fabulous. Uh, so I'd really recommend that. Uh, Emma, thank you very much. Emma Shaw, thank you very much for your uh, email. Remember, if you'd like to get in touch, you can uh, email us at booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Books of the Year, at Books of the Year, and our DMs are open. And we're also on Instagram at Pick Any Page. That's Pick Any Page. That's Pick Any Page. At Pick Any Page. Is that what it is? That's what they at say. Pick at any Pick Any Page. page. Yeah. Or Books of the Year at yahoo.com. Correct. If you'd like to email yes, us. Indeed. Thank you very much. Uh, here comes this week's very fine episode. Okay, and our special guest in Books of the Year is Catriona Ward. Her new novel is Looking Glass Sound, and she joins us. In fact, she's breaking away from her holiday in uh, La Belle France to speak to us. Hello, Catriona. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Have you dragged yourself inside from a bit of sun worship? <laughs> from inside from a rather dramatic thunderstorm, actually. Um, so uh, it's kind of appropriate for the sort of books that I write. I've come, you know, the atmosphere all adds. Right, so you only go on holiday to places that kind of <laughs> yes. add to the atmosphere of your horror. Yes, I only go on holiday to horrible places uh, with lots of <laughs> ominous weather. Yeah, how just that's interesting. How would you describe, in general, and in sweeping terms, how would you describe the books that you write, all of them? Oh, I mean, it's a difficult one. I horror with heart. You know, I think, um, because I think, for me, horror is always about compassion, which is not perhaps a terribly um, sort of um, popular point of view. But I, I do think that you can only care and and feel fear where you, where you where you feel empathy and compassion. So that's sort of what I try and take from the genre and 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 use. Um, you know, so. Right, so they're more about the horror, I guess, sometimes the horror of being alive more than anything else, rather than anything terribly supernatural. Right. OK, so that's that's the broad brushstrokes. Uh, before yes. we get into the detail of Looking Glass 
sound. Matt, uh, describe the cover. Now, there's a UK cover and there is a US cover. So do the, the UK cover. I'll do the, yeah. The, so the one that I've got in front of me and that most of our listeners over here are going to be seeing on their bookshelves is, uh, well, it's a sort of mixture of green, black and gold. And we're looking at a, well, we've got a, a settlement on top of a cliff. Uh, the settlement's in white. And there's also a figure in white standing on the edge of that cliff. And then it's reflected the greens and blacks and golds into the mm. water underneath. And we see a reflection of the figure and the and the cottage I suppose you call it uh, at the bottom uh, looking glass sound in white and it's sort of got where watery uh, effects on the title as well what dark reflection will you see and then uh, some nice testimonies from Jennifer Saint and Ollie Olivy Blake Olivy Blake, Blake. There and you now, what is, I tend to prefer UK covers but the US cover it's got looking glass sound in red letters at the top, Catriona Ward white letters at the bottom, and we're looking from inside a cave, outside in the mouth of the cave, sort of is shaped like a, a, a skull or a head with a boat being one eye and a floating person being the other eye. And the quote on the I just do this because the quote on the front is from Stephen King talking about Sundial, one of your other books. Do not miss this book, authentically terrifying. So I'm just thinking, if you get a Stephen King quote, you want to use it on the front. With all respect to Olivia Blake, by the way. Do you, I suppose you're going to say you like both covers. But the, but the US cover looks to me more powerful. It's definitely, uh, it's definitely channeling um, something, you know, a very strong theme of the book, which is, it is that this book is my love letter to Stephen King country, you know, to Maine, to those northern reaches, that really bleak, um, incredible... Um, sort of, I, mean, I think when you when you're in the in the furthest northern reaches of Maine, you're further north than you are in many parts of, in some parts of Canada, and um, it's got that quality of light to it. It's got that particular very, um, very a very distinct set accent and sense of community, and it is imaginatively the landscape of Stephen King. And um, I, I wanted to, I, I wanted to invoke that. So that that cover definitely. Um, is is uh, you know that's it's got a, a direct direct line to that. Um, the UK. What I love about the UK cover is it's um it's the the way it evokes it reflect the reflectiveness of it because this is a novel all about um, iterations of things and the way we tell stories and um, how we reflect back correctly or incorrectly indeed our experiences and that of others. And um, my, my one of my favourite lines <laughs> in the book is um it's about inevitably it's about um writers and writing as a way of reflecting back trauma and those experiences is um writers are monsters we eat everything we see which um i i feel to be true um a bit a little bit of a little bit of um self-awareness there i guess but um i do like them both yeah i do i mean (laughs) sometimes you say that insincerely but in this case i genuinely really do yeah, and you always have to say that as well. So, <laughs> so anyway, so we so we've we've introduced listeners to to both covers, and they can check them both out. Uh, the words are the same inside. Introduce us then to Looking Glass Sound. Where are we? When are we? Who are we reading about? So we're um, we're in the uh, memoir of a sixteen-year-old boy called Wilder Harlow, who takes a holiday in the late nineteen eighties um, with his family up to the Maine coastline. Um, where he forms um, a friendship with um, a boy called Nat and a girl called Harper. Um, The kind of friendships, you know, those intense, almost 
almost um, romantic strength friendships that perhaps you only form when you're when you're that age when you're in your teens where you know the world feels new and um, and and your relationship with other people seems something you've only just discovered you know in this respect and then um, there's a terrible sting in the tail of um, of, of this relationship where there's a terrible discovery that reverberates down through all th- all of their lives and they carry it with them um for the rest of their for the rest of their time um and the story we follow we follow wilder as he goes to college and starts to process this experience through writing and which is the memoir we sort of started off reading um but there is um there is a theft or uh, an appropriation of his story by um by by someone else who he who seems to be a very uh, benign and recuperative and and loving and loving uh, new friend, uh, but turns out to be uh, turns out to be not so. Um, so it is, it's it's it is sort of about who owns a story, who has the right to tell a story, but also about the way the, none of us ever live the same experience twice, um, and certainly not uh, not no one writes or reads the same experience twice and it's also just I just really wanted to have it soaked in that you know that may, that summer main sunlight um and in in this blush of first friendship and first love um because I I tend to focus um in a lot of my other novels on the bleaker side of things and although this, <laughs> this doesn't it's not entirely easy easy book and it certainly you know takes it takes a turn for the dramatic and the and and there is suffering and sorrow it's it, you know it's it's got more optimism and and sort of love in it than um than I've previously explored um so I don't know I'm, f- I'm fond of it for that reason before we get to the love and optimism um in the uh, we were talking about Stephen King so in the first part of the book when we have this friendship between Wilder and Nathaniel uh, and Harper uh, we're introduced to this um the idea of uh, the possibility of a serial killer called Dagger Man, the Dagger Man of, uh, of Whistler Bay. And yeah. it's almost that that could have been the whole of the book. I, I think when yeah. you start, people, we might be thinking, OK, this is this is the territory. I'm, I'm familiar yeah. with this. This is interesting. Who and who is the Dagger Man uh, uh, and so on? Was that always going to be just... Uh, written about in the first kind of quarter of the book, obviously with repercussions th- throughout the rest of it, or was that ever kind of the did whole that story ever kind of possessed most of the book <laughs> in strangely actually that made up less of in the first earlier drafts it made up less of the story than than um than than it than it does currently um because i the what i really wanted to do was slowly transform the book over the course of it you know of the narrative from one thing into a completely different thing almost to the extent that the object you're holding almost changes in your hands. Um, that's as, as I think I'm being su- suitably oblique, but because <laughs> it's difficult to talk about without spoilers. But um, I, I always knew I wanted to transform it from this sort of very much imbued with Stephen King's, you know, um, uh, cu- country and atmosphere and 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 themes as well. You know, we, no one does um, young adolescent friendship and love like Stephen King. Um, so I, I wanted to, to to invoke that at first and then slowly unspool it so that you realise what you've been reading is something completely different. So it, it's it's al- it was always been the intention to have it um, to have it metamorphose as it were into into something else. 
I knew I was going to really enjoy this, Catriona, when we, when I could work out that we were in the sort of genre of horror. Because horror, as far as films are concerned, horror is one of those genres that I will turn away from straight away. I'm not interested in horror movies. Um, but when it comes to books, and we've we've mentioned Stephen King a few times, and his is absolutely the gold standard when it comes to that. I absolutely I love delving straight in there. I can sense though that you're obviously you're you you don't want to give away too many spoilers, but I do want to just a little push you a little on Daggerman because I think the premise of what Daggerman is doing is so enthralling that people listening to this are going to be are gonna, they're going to have their appetite wetted. So just tell us what Daggerman is doing in this in this sleepy little village. Well, um what what he, what he does is he um sneaks into houses and uh, takes pictures of children asleep with a, uh, a dagger held to their throat or to their ear. Um, and nobody knows he's been in the house um, until later um, when he gives, he sends the Polaroids that he took of, of, of the children sleeping with a knife to their throats uh, back to the families and the parents. Um, which is, <laughs> I mean, I, I sort of unnerved myself with that idea, um, <laughs> e you know, even as I was writing it. Um, it's uh yeah it's 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 pretty horrible and also it just it, there's there's something so malicious and malign about being observed when you don't know you're being observed in your most kind of innocent vulnerable state which is which is sleeping and you know and with children as well uh, yeah so um, well done me for um achieving peak factor <laughs> Well, no, I, I, it's terrifying. It's a terrifying, which is which, which is what makes it so good. But and I, I listen. This is a a subject we we always explore with writers: is where that initial germ of an idea comes from, because it is such a good premise straight away. As soon as you, as soon as you encounter that in the book, a shiver goes down your spine as you're like, oh my goodness, imagine this. And we have characters in the book literally battening down their windows so that the dagger man can't get in there house and i so can you explore a little for for us where that came did it just sort of alight upon you in one of your storm tossed days or or <laughs> had you had that in your head for a while um i i i i find something really fascinating about polaroids and i i always have because they're so, first of all just the way they look is so eerie they've got this they've got it's a very specific time period that they evoke isn't it it's that sort of slightly washed out particular color palette um and the fact that you know they they're the product of a moment but also you know they you don't have to develop, develop them but you see the image materialize in that rather creepy way before you so i find i find i've always found polaroids like a innately quite a quite a macabre idea in themselves um i am like like many writers like most horror writers or thriller writers I, I i'm a true crime addict you know i remember remember reading about various cases of um of like of serial killers from that from that era and i remember thinking <laughs> what's now how do you ex how do you um how do you push this a step further because it's sort of like the the traditional um the not traditional that's probably the wrong word to use but the uh, the habitual um a trope of a serial killer taking trophies only in this case he takes the trophies in the form of their image it's sort of that almost that that idea of stealing one's soul through a photograph you know he, he takes he takes their image unknowing um and steals away with it and then worst of all you know 
hammers the point home by by letting them know what he's done. And I just I just remember thinking, I've never <laughs> I've never read anything quite like that. Why don't I put it in a book? Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, a lot of my true crime research is thinking it was kind of um, based on are we sure this hasn't been done? Um, because I, I, I ra- I'd rather use imagination in dealing with things like ser- like serial killers and, and um, violence and trauma, I'd rather use imagination than um, uh, directly bounce off real cases. I think it, it works better for the reader. I think it's more respectful, if you will, uh, and, 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 and better for me as well. It means you can, you know, you can really let, uh, you can really let the, uh, the nasty ideas loose. How did this story arrive? I mean, Matt was asking about the Dagger Man, but in terms of the whole story of Wilder, the fact he's writing um, this memoir, uh, did the idea arrive fully formed? What was the germ of this story? Well, I sort of resisted it as long as I could, actually, because I think I always think there's, there's, there can be a temptation to be a little bit self-indulgent being a writer writing about writers, you know, Um and, but I, I, re- I knew that I wanted. I knew I wanted to do it, simply because I do feel that it's a sort of monstrous profession in, in an emo- emotional sense. Um, you know, you uh, you just you, you tend to do mo- most of your emotional processing onto the page. I mean, I rightly or wrongly, I feel more myself on the page than I do in real life, and I, I think it's a very interesting it's an interesting state of mind to exist in. Uh, there, I was talking to someone about uh, dissociative identity disorder um, a couple of years ago and they were saying that actually I was trying to ask them what it felt like you know what what does it feel like to dissociate to that extent and they said well think about what happens when you're writing Um, it feels I I imagine it feels rather like that where all the cognitive and critical faculties of your brain sort of shut down It's it's a strange thing because you are totally using them but you are you're you're slipping into a slightly more I suppose it's it's, it's comparable to playing the piano. I suppose um, when you when you stop thinking, um, and I just I, I I do think that there's a certain kind of vicious cannibalistic quality to the act of creation and 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 to writing in particular, um, and I always wanted to explore that because <laughs> I, I I always laugh when I see you know portrait very romanticized portrayals. Of, of writers, um, you know, in film and television and 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 in books, and I just think there's always the bit where the, the first st- short story they write uh, gets published in the in the New Yorker, and uh, you know, <laughs> age of eighteen, and um, <laughs> and you, you know, the the novel that they work on, you know, in, in, in evenings and weekends, immediately becomes a New York Times bestseller somehow two months after they finished writing it, and you know, I, I, you see a lot of you see a lot of this, and I just thought, oh well, it, it's a bit. It's a bit more boring, but also a bit more interesting than that at the same time. It's got teeth to it, you know. And the, I think there are a lot of novels that that just you know that discuss um, the the way that the way that different people process experience and and and, and reflect back experience. But I just thought to do it um, in this particular way with this particular like lens on it, with particularly the reference, you know, the sort of the, the Stephen King references, and also, but also it's kind of gets moves into metafiction I guess as well because I you know it's 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 a discussion of like my obsessions as a person and as a writer but yeah <laughs> I just thought I just thought wouldn't it be interesting to do to do something um just a little a little with with a little more groundedness and scope for showing what it's really like well I'll tell you what's very very difficult is to make the act of writing interesting on the page because <laughs> 
it's inherently not. Um, it's just um, you know watching someone make constantly bang their head metaphorically against a brick wall. But the drama of it is in what you're trying to evoke and also what it means personally to you like why why are people driven to to pursue this quite often quite thankless and and not particularly remunerative job which gives you emotional and artistic torture as well as um as well as occasionally reward but it's it's mostly making mistakes that's what writing is this endless series of mistakes and then eventually by a process of elimination you get it right so um i just i was just fascinated by that really can i push you to 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 answer the question, which is, <laughs> sorry, which is the, the so so the, was the germ of the idea Wilder Harlow? Was it was it the idea yes, it of yes. finding a sixteen-year-old boy? So did did it start there and then overtake your life from that moment on? Was that was yeah. that the germ? I knew that it was. I knew that it was going to be wilder, and I knew that it was going to be wilder in various. At various ages, so you have a you have a you have a teenage Wilder, then you have him at university, and then much much later you have him uh, as an as an as an older man. And I thought that was interesting too, is to show how different how different people write differently when at different ages. Yes, he was he was always the, he was always the germ of, of of the story, and I built it up around him, sort of like in accretions of narrative. I I I remember when I when I first brought it to my editor, she was like, oh. I just, you know, I just don't like him. And I was like, well, but is he interesting though? No, it's, um, <laughs> I think I, I was, I mean, I think that's what, what, what Gillian Flynn um, once said about her characters. She's like, you don't have to like them, but do you care what they do and what they do next? I really like him. And I think, I think that's, that may say more about me than perhaps one, perhaps one might want to, but you know, he's, um, I'm, and I grew up in a, I had a very solitary up, upbringing, um, strangely, you know, I grew up in Madagascar and Kenya and Yemen and Morocco, and it was, you know, it, before the internet, you don't really get to carry friendships, you know, from one place to another. And I have this, you know, I felt this real affinity with his, although it's a different context, this, his, um, his, his social and, and literal isolation, you know, and emotional isolation. I think horror, I think horror in particular is the refuge of lonely children. You know, it, it's very good at, te- at opening the world out into, and, sh- and showing you, you know, for the first time, these more complex adult adult feelings, which perhaps you don't know how to deal with. So it was a na- that's a natural kind of marriage. But yeah, he's 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 absolutely the centre of it. I think what I I found fascinating here, Catriona, and you'll have sensed this from the questions me and Simon have thrown at you, which uh, some of them have been about the idea where this idea germinated from. And I think that's a fascination most people have. When talking to when talking to writers, is mm, where where did mm. you get this idea from, and how did it develop? And the fact that, the, that I, I I want to press you on this just because it's explored in the book is mm. you have so we have a character later on Sky who wants to write, who's desperate to write, yeah. but has a block and feels that if only if only I'd had an experience to be able to draw on, then maybe yes. I'd be able to, to to write this amazing book. And we have Wilder who has had this experience we're not going to talk about but a, a dreadful experience and actually that's the reason that's stopping him writing and Sky's sort of trying to push him to, to, to write help thinking it, it, it'll help him and I, it feels to me like that was if we're talking about the little germ of the idea as I was reading it I was thinking that's where you started is where are these ideas coming from because we are fascinated by how it grows and that's what led you into the world of Wilder and, and, and then into Sky. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's very astute. It's um, there's this sort of sense of um, perhaps, as you say, there's a kind of air of sometimes of privilege to to trauma <laughs> like that. You know, where to have a story, perhaps, you know, despite its um, dis- despite how horrific it might be, a story to tell is is kind of the holy grail. I I definitely was um, that juxtaposition between Sky and Wilder is really. Is, is exactly as you say really interesting like like what you know for very very different reasons reasons they both can't write <laughs> and and each i think probably envies the other's um situation mm. because one of you know one of them uh, has had a terrible trauma but and is looking at you know a much more affluent kid who's probably more confident and comfortable with his sexuality and um in all ways you know uh, has been dealt a better hand of cards uh, whereas Sky looks at Wilder and sees, you know, he has he has this rich mine of things to to delve into, and you know, narratively and and a story to tell. And he's you know he's a he's a he's a protagonist. You know, you become a you know going through something terrible in a way, it makes you into a protagonist. It makes you into the lead character, and gives you a sense of a, a, a sense of self, as healthy or unhealthy as that may be. I tell you what, it is unhealthy. Anyone who writes in green ink. <laughs> yeah, that's always a, always a sign. Always. It is, always isn't it? Yeah. I wanted him to have that sort of, those kind of really, you know, those pretensions you get at university where you just, you think you're so deep and you have lots of conversations about philosophy and like, and like uh, the new world order and economics late at night after a few drinks. I just thought, you know, that's And he's exactly reading Proust the... as well. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. In green ink. That's always a bad sign. We're talking about the cover of the book, Looking Glass Sound, and then the fact that it says, what dark reflection will you see? Another strap line would be green ink. <laughs> red flag. Red flag. Green, green ink, ink, red, red flag. flag. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's, that, that's definitely true. What, which, which fears are you tackling here? I think people find it fascinating, Katrina, about how you, how you make us fearful. And obviously a lot of that comes from plot and character. But which particular fears are you stirring here? Okay, so starting from a base point, I always think what's most frightening is having what you love or what you rely on turn to something destructive. I think that's, I think, I think that that's the that is the fear. Um, you know, this in this in in this story, you have Wilder finds for the first time friends. And which are his first friends, really. He's a weird kid. He's a weird kid with, you know, enormous, over, like, bulbous eyes. Very, very strange looking. He does not very socially adept. And he finds friends. This sh- and this is a... It, it feels like, a for, you know, a, a forever friendship. It feels like something that is has changed his life in, uh, irreversibly for the better. Um, which turns out not to be so. That those... I find those emotional betrayals quite horrible. I find them as filled filled with horror as um as anything else. I also think though, I mean, I'm like I'm terrified of the sea. This this um this book is very very deeply about the sea and about what about there's just that feeling when you're when you're swimming and you know you can't see the bottom but you can sort of picture it. You can sort of picture it like hundred feet below you maybe. You can just picture all that space. Of, and what might be filling that space, and um, particularly the image of one's own tiny little legs just kicking helplessly in the ocean. I uh, give myself the creeps just talking about it. And I think there's always there's always a sense of the way that family can betray you. There's one instance in particular where you know there's there's a between you know a 
a father and a son. There's there's great there's great um a discovery of them not being who who they who one thinks they are. Um, and I think that that's terrifying as well. I was, you know, the thing is with writing as well is that it transforms your, it transforms and changes your experience. So it it transforms everything that you that you remember and 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 that you and you see into something completely different, which is in the story. And I think there's a kind of horror which kind of gets ramped up later in the book of does it in a way deprive you? Does it sort of make you stop existing? If you write someone, you change them and. You change your memories of them, you change your experience of them, and don't you really sort of erase them and put in place some construct of them for the for the novelistic purposes? And that's an idea that's sort of played with quite extensively because I, I, I one of the most terrifying things that I can imagine existentially is to, is is the to not is to not exist to perhaps be metamorphosed into a, into a, a figment of someone else's imagination um, and perhaps you know am I only that I don't know I, I I find I find that walking that line um between reality and fiction um in itself quite 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 terrifying I'm so glad Catriona that you've spoken about your fear of the sea because <laughs> the, the sea like so the sea features probably more prominently on the US version um uh cover than on the on the British one but I, I that was the first thing I thought of when I was reading your book is Maybe. that almost the sea is this antagonist but also I I can't stand the sea I don't understand why people go <laughs> into the sea the sea doesn't want us there it's full of things trying to kill us and yeah, we're, people are constantly us, yeah. dying in this but people keep <laughs> swimming in the sea and this idea that that you've you've you alighted on something there that you know you'll be swimming and your mind is like what was that did I just feel yeah. something is something beneath me and and and, and your mind is 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 filling you, in you all need the therapy man. absolutely I, I just don't get it. I was really, I was listening to a podcast earlier this week uh, of this uh, this woman who uh, is a, a long distance swimmer and she goes swimming very very early in the morning and she will go out at dark and swim yeah. off this jetty um it, she, she was off the off, i think it was the west coast of of the u.s and mm. she as she was swimming she sensed something beneath her uh. and i'm like oh my god and it turns out it's a baby whale and so she keeps swimming because the baby whale's lost its mother and stuff like that but the very idea of swimming and things being beneath you. And that is, uh, the, the reason I'm bringing this up is you've mentioned it of this fear of the sea, but it is a yeah. prominent part of that first third of the book where yeah, there are things, I'm obviously being very careful about what I say here, but there are things beneath the waves that you don't want to see. Yeah, there, there, there really are. And um, there's there's a word which I, I sort of wish I hadn't learned actually, um, which comes back again and again and again in the book, which is to be to de-glove. Um, mm, oh my goodness! <laughs> yes, thank, thanks. A I word think... I was unfamiliar with until I read this book. Yeah, I, I sort of wish I didn't know it as well, but um, I won't go into what it is. Perhaps people can discover it through <laughs> through the book or through Google. But um, it is it is probably one of the most horrible, visceral things. It sort of make I can also I can sort of like feel my kind of throat closing up thinking about it. But um. Yeah, degloving, de- de- and uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm really terrified of almost everything. So I'm scared of the dark. I'm scared of the sea. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I'm you know I'm not scared of animals so much, but pretty much everything else. So uh, you know, and I think that this this book kind of constitutes a kind of pinnacle 
peak fear of all of all of my worst nightmares because the idea of someone watching you sleep the and in the dark the idea of going you know swimming and having you know perhaps just this there's even though no even though it doesn't never happens you always have the sense that someone unseen hand could reach up from the depths and just grasp your ankle really gently <sighs> sort of chilly rotten grasp i i've definitely managed to put all of those all of those fears very much on the page I wonder, just just finally, I was uh, reading, Catriona, that when you were younger, you suffered from what I think, are they called hypnagogic hallucinations? Is that yes. the right word? Yeah, yeah, the, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, we, and so, so just define in a couple of sentences what, what what a hypnagogic hallucination is and how it manifested itself with you. Well, so it, it's it's essentially it's a very very intense hallucination, um, audio audio and and visual that happens on the cusp of sleep. And I started um, when I was thirteen. I used to I used to have very strong. I'd wake up to the very strong sensation of a hand in the small of my back pushing me out of bed. And I could feel every finger on this hand. It felt like a real hand. It was, this is before Google or anything else. So, you know, for the next, because it continued, in, you know, it still continues to this day, but I know what they are now, so it's not so scary. But um, it, because it went with me everywhere, I, I thought it was me who was haunted, not, not, not the place, you know. Perhaps that's why I turned... See, to... I, see I just wonder where, where, whether your writing is, is basically an attempt to give us that same experience you know that I, I, most yeah. people don't suffer from hypnagogic hallucinations <laughs> yeah. but through reading your book we are viscerally in the cave we are under the water you know we are yeah. in the college room with sky and with wilder that's what you're trying to do i think that i think that's exactly i think that's exactly right because there's no quality of fear that's quite like that that sort of fear you feel in the night is there and and, and, and unless it's that fear that's um caged by the page Pipe by the written word, you don't feel that sort of fear just you know in, in rational daylight, do you? Um, yeah, no, that's very true. I've definitely decided to sh chosen to share my nightmares. Have you ever thought of writing? I don't know, period fiction, you know, <laughs> quaint Victorian comedy, maybe. <laughs> What you saying? This isn't a comedy. Um, it's uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I well, my first novel was a was a was a proper gothic novel, nineteenth you know nineteenth century novel. But um, I I really like that that marriage of sort of the modern you know all of our modern security and safety with all of these old fears. Like you just it just shows you can't actually get away from the fears. You know, historical setting was all well well and good, but you know no matter how modern you get, how many Bowden kettles you have. Have. you're still um you're still prey to whatever comes in the night yes beware of people with greening also if on holiday as a teenager you meet a flame-haired english girl <laughs> yes uh, you know walk past on the other side yeah yeah <laughs> good advice very good advice um, Catriona Ward's book is Looking Glass Sound. There'll be more conversation with Catriona in our Q&A, which will arrive uh, in a few days' time. But for the moment, Catriona Ward, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I loved it.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.